Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film Rushmore. Joining us today is our special guest, Jillian Marianovich. So welcome, Jillian. Hey, Thank Jillian. you for coming. Hi, guys. Thanks for talking with yeah. us tonight. So can you get started by telling us a little bit about what <laughs> you do in the entertainment world? Sure. That's the entertainment side of politics, mm, I can sure. safe, safely say. Um, mm-hmm. I started off as a pretty traditional graphic designer. Mm-hmm. I worked in a bunch of, you know, ad agencies and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I got to the point where I just couldn't convince myself to make another tampon ad. So at the same time, I was living in Chicago and Barack Obama was setting up his re-election campaign in uh, 2012. And I was like, you know what? I've always been super political. I'm really good at computers and digital. Let's see what that would look like going to work for a politician. And I'd never done it before. Nothing, not volunteered, anything. So this was my first foray into the world of Um, politics. mm -hmm. So I was dumped right in the middle of this (laughs) massive, massive Obama political machine. And it was so fun. I learned so much. It was so hard. Um, And this was, you know, this was like kind of the beginning of social media. Yeah. Wasn't there wasn't the TikTok. There wasn't the Instagram. It was it was there was some Facebook, but, you know, it was a lot of Twitter and a lot of TV. And so um, I learned real quick about what it was like to work in that field. And it was very different than working in advertising. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, we won. And <laughs> <laughs> from there, I got hired at the White House for his uh, second administration. It was crazy. I was terrified. I did not know what I was walking into. You know, I was worried that I'd have to wear pantsuits and sensible shoes and whatnot, but it wasn't like that at all. It was a tremendously creative environment. I worked very closely with the video team. And, you know, at that, his second term, like there was a lot of craziness going on in the world and like the midterms were terrible and we got our asses kicked. But we also really got to be creative in the partnerships we had. And this was like when YouTube was really becoming a thing and the yeah. YouTube star was becoming a thing. So we would we would try to get the president involved in sort of like a younger demographic of people online and sort of a different ways for him to express himself and really kind of like activate a younger electorate uh, with digital. And so we got to just do a tremendous amount of stuff i don't know if you saw like the between two ferns he did oh yeah yeah. very amazing and he 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 was super game and barack obama's a really funny guy like genuinely hysterical so um we never worried about him being able to rise to the occasion of needing needing to be funny and um so it was just such an amazing opportunity to work with the most brilliant people on the face of the earth. And it completely changed my life as one would expect. And um, <laughs> having, you know, work with purpose, that's the thing I can say, like, if I were to give any advice to anyone coming up in any field is you have to have work with purpose. Yeah. You have to, you have to end your day with being like, okay, I did something real today. I, mm-hmm helped the world. I helped a person, you know, even if it's a single person, that is what will give your career longevity. Yeah, definitely. 
Great. And it's so interesting to listen to you talk about your job because we've interviewed digital producers, you know, and their job is how can I engage with a new audience via social media? And what you're describing is so similar, but obviously higher stakes because it's for like elections and candidates. I don't think people realize there is a huge connection or maybe they do realize it between politics and entertainment and just trying to figure out how can we use entertainment to reach new voters, different voters, different voices and get them involved in these campaigns and in these movements. So I think that's just so interesting to hear. And I was excited when you said you, um, you signed up to do the show because I was like, this is a whole facet people probably don't think about when they're yeah. these jobs. And I mean, I don't know if you guys watched Succession. I'm going to ask you. But like a huge, huge portion of this last season was like how the election was stolen and yeah. how like media is totally tricked to work, on, you know, for one right. side. So like the storytelling aspect of politics is real and people yeah. do are interested in it. Now, will that convert people to vote? Who knows? Yeah. But I think people are kind of fascinated with the behind the scenes elements of mm-hmm. media and politics. So yes, definitely. definitely. So what was your job title when you were working at the White House? Creative director, nice. um, which is never a title that you would associate with politics. It's yeah. a, and, and I struggle with it now because when I approach campaigns, campaigns are very rigid. We've got our fundraising, we've got our field operations, we've got our communications and press, and then we have the digital team, which is like the catch-all for things that are considered creative. And so they're like, so you make tweets? And I'm like, yes, but it's so much more than that. There's a lot of tribalism when it comes to politics, especially now. And yes, that that can be seen as bad, but it can also be seen as good because I feel like when you see someone wearing the shirt of your candidate, you're like, oh, there's a person I can talk to. There's a person that I have something in common with. To sort of promote the inclusion aspect of candidates is is really something I take very seriously. And how do you make that accessible and inclusive to people of all demographics that want to be a part of your candidate's platform or movement or campaign? Yeah, definitely. Nice. So we always like to hear about our guests' path to sort of where they ended up today. So you talked a little bit about your transition from advertising into politics. Could yeah. You, sorry, start kind of back at the beginning and just how you got those skills and like how they transferred. So great question. I yeah. um, grew up in the Midwest and I'd always been super politically minded, even, you know, as I was like 13 and didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I went to actually music school uh, out of high school. I went to, yeah, I was going to become a rock star. Um, that clearly is yet to pan out, but any day now. A different kind of rock star. Yeah, Yeah, a different kind of rock star. So I went to music school, which didn't super pan out. And from there, I went to Berkeley in in Boston. At the same time, I was like, shit, shit, shit. My dreams are all (laughs) crashing down. But I've always been really good at computers and I've always been really good at art. Mm -hmm. So I kind of could slide into like graphic design training. And so I went to Massachusetts College of Art and Design and did some of the graphic design stuff. Um, getting a foundation there. And this was this was at the very kind of like renaissance of digital design and advertising online. So it was very easy to get a job. And mm. I kind of got sucked into advertising pretty quickly from there. Um, so, you know, money was to be made. And but like I said, it was just like, ugh, working for clients. And it's just it sucked. Yeah. So I escaped that world. 
And did you find that the similarities between, even though it's not as rewarding, the similarities between like selling to an audience and figuring out the audience and advertising transferred well to politics? Definitely. I mean, like there's fundamentals of like a creative brief that apply wherever you are. Like who's your audience? What are you trying to convince them? And what are you asking them to do? And what's the reasoning behind that? And that is the fundamental of persuasion politics. Like we are talking to... Latinos in Iowa, and we want them to vote for this bill. Like, there's a structure there that applies across any sort of um, communications product, advertising, politics. Cool. So, what did you do after the White House? So, after the White House, I thought we would have a Hillary Clinton White House. Uh, That sadly did not happen. And so, I did some consulting stuff for a while, and then I knew. I wanted to get on a 2020 campaign. I was kind of waiting to see who my candidate would be. Like I always loved Elizabeth Warren and, you know, I'd lived in Boston for a long time. So I thought she'd be a natural pick. But then Mayor Pete Buttigieg kind of popped up out of nowhere. And I really was inspired by uh, him, his story, what he stood for. And I luckily knew some people on the campaign and, you know, had to really network my way into it. But I got hired really early on, which is so crucial to like yeah. build the team and build the environment. And mm-hmm. so I, I worked on the Pete, the Pete primary presidential campaign for a year from South Bend. And then he dropped out and then I worked in the Biden campaign. And then I worked on a mayor's race in New York. And I worked on a, the TV show I worked on, um, tuning out the news on CBS, which is a random in between. <laughs> and then I most recently worked on the John Fetterman yeah. Pennsylvania Senate race, which was another really crazy, amazing experience. And then I currently work for um, former Senator Al Franken doing his digital SNL star. Yes. So yeah, I've, I'm very much involved still. And I'm, you know, having my eye on the next race soon. Um, we will see what happens. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I, I think especially people to judge and John Fetterman, both their campaigns, the digital really stood out. Yeah. So I mean, it just showed how powerful that area is. And again, like, I don't know if, if everyone realizes how how much power that's gained over, you know, the last few years. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how much like the influencer uh, strategy is important and how much I mean, I don't know if you guys know, like the TikTok controversies about how like, it is a Chinese company it is run by the Chinese government, like they can definitely influence our elections and youngsters, these these young people are so addicted to it in crazy um mentally unsafe ways that I I'm worried about how that's going to play out uh in this next next election yeah it's definitely something that needs like keep an eye on it and also just it's important to have someone on your campaign who understands it as much as you can yeah yeah so when you sit down and make content for any candidate right I mean I know they each have different um, talking points they all have different things they stand for but when you approach your job what does your day-to-day look like when you're sitting down to be either a campaign director or you know creative director or you know organizing the team what does that look like so a couple things i think as like the the thesis of my job i would say is to share the authentic personality and viewpoints of the candidate however mm-hmm. me- whatever medium that is but showing them as a real person, showing them unscripted, showing them sort of candid, those products 
always perform the best. Um, and then how do you make the experience of a candidate inclusive? Is that an event that you go to? Is it the website? Is it, it's all those touch points. Like, how does it feel like, especially with Pete, like he had such a visceral brand from the shirts to the music that played when he walked on stage. Yeah. Just same with Fetterman, very, very much. Fetterman had such an iconic brand, but that we didn't have to make that. That's who he is. Yeah. <laughs> so we just, and luckily the team, the like campaign team, senior campaign team, like let him off the chain. Yeah. There was no need for, oh, he needs to be more rehearsed or he needs to wear different clothes. It was like, let this dude be himself (laughs) and let's see what happens. And that can be really dangerous because a lot of candidates shouldn't be allowed to interact with other humans. (laughs) (laughs) But I've I've been really lucky that all my candidates have been really good human beings and funny and kind and wise and genuine. And so- showing the genuineness is always like at the forefront of my mind of what I want to communicate. On top of that, the day-to-day stuff of like, oh, we need graphics for this tweet or this report needs to go out and we need charts. So there's like, there's the day-to-day managing of that stuff, but it's also sort of like, okay, we want our candidate to be the, this guy, like, how do we show that he's this midwestern veteran gay how do we package that and make it digestible and make people relate to it and these are all really hard tasks and it's a really unique position that i think modern politics is really celebrating right now mm-hmm. so you're going to see a lot more of it you're going to see but again you can't just turn a camera on to some random state senator and be like hey be funny and they're like you know, it. you can tell when they're awkward and when they're not legit, they throw on like a, a Grateful Dead t-shirt, but it still has the tag on it. Right. Sure. <laughs> it's got the fold lines. Yeah. <laughs> their, their wife just bought it at Urban Outfitters. So like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really finding genuine people mm-hmm. and, and connecting with people that can vote. Yeah. So you mentioned your kind of brief foray into entertainment with tuning out the news. How did that come about? Yeah. So I was in between campaigns and this was like definitely during COVID. So, and they were, they were still kind of an underground show. They were just streaming. So part of my gig at the white house was working very much on the correspondence dinner. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Is my favorite thing because I'm a huge (laughs) huge comedy nerd. And so getting to do anything with jokes and comedy Mm -hmm. and uh, that kind of stuff with the president was great. So I I took those skills of making those graphics, you know, like he would, he would drop a joke and we pop up the graphic Um, that just translated super easily to what tuning out the news does, which, and it's all very visual jokes. So that just kind of, I applied and I think I had a friend that worked there and so I had to do some back channeling but yeah it was it was just for one season and it was all remote yeah um, and I'm super sad that it was remote because I really wanted that like writer's room experience yeah. yeah it's a really funny show and really fun writers but um it was cool it's great yeah and I know the humor on that show is often politically based so it was your background kind of a selling point too yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah. And then do you see a lot of other people moving between that political sphere and like the political late night show sphere? I would say some of the 
like speech writers especially yeah, have a, a much easier jump to go from speech writing to like consulting on the daily show right. or that kind of stuff. So you do see, or they, a lot of the speech writers write books, all the okay. Obama, all the Obama speech writers have many, many books. Um, and they've gone on to produce, you know, obviously podcasts and, mm-hmm. and, and comedy stuff on their own. So that, that seems to be an easy, a much easier yeah. uh, jump. Okay. Did you notice any similarities between how your team was set up for a campaign and how that kind of, I know it was remote, but I, so with the late night writing team. Well, they would come to us and be like, okay, we need these eight things. Um, They would kind of give us the preface for the joke, but they were pretty, they pretty much knew what they wanted. We want a Fox news set with a Ted Cruz having a um, exorcism. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we would take that back and, you know, we'd do a bunch of versions until we really nailed the joke. Because it's hard to nail jokes that show on the screen for three seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And get across the joke plus, yeah, so it, it was tough, but um, yeah, it was very cool. Especially okay. that show that's so timely because yeah. that was one of those shows that really responded to the news very quickly. Well, yeah, they were doing it, I mean, day of animation. Day of, yeah, right. yeah. So how much time did your team really have to to make that? Oh, a day, a day. We had yeah. like five hours. Um, It was like a really strict schedule, like. Right. If you needed to like run to the store to grab lunch, you had to like be like, hey, I'm offline for 40 minutes. I'll be right back. Like it was mm-hmm. just very, very uh, scheduled, which in TV production, I guess I knew it would, it would be like that. But it was pretty shocking how regimented it was. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned your kind of comedy background and your love of comedy. Uh, you went to Second City, right? Yep. Do you think your improv background and like if you did sketch there that that helps in your political job (laughs) I think being quick yeah is going to be helpful you know being able to have a response being able to like pounce on a joke is great but it also bites me in the ass because (laughs) sometimes you can't stop it yeah you'll be on on a call with like someone somewhat important and you're like oh god here it comes comes (laughs) exactly exactly Yeah, definitely being around Second City. And I did UCB here in in New York for a long time. And I just I just love the improv comedy vibe and just Mm -hmm. being around people that it's I mean, you guys do improv. So it's kind of you, you know, like being in a in a group that has the mind meld is so awesome. And that's hard to reconstruct. But when you're there with like a, a work team, it's it's awesome. It's funny. We would go to Camp David on retreats at the White House. And um, the first time we were all kind of like, what do we do? Did it I'm like, I have an idea. Let's do a improv game. And so like we did. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're on like the patio of like one of the main right. Camp David. There's like, you know, military base. So there's like army dudes everywhere and we're like (laughs) 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 but they fucking loved it and so that became that became a thing and i i will do that anytime i'm in a new group or a new team just to sort of like break the fear or any sort of of nervousness so yeah doing improv games i i do that every every single campaign i'm on Uh, that's awesome (laughs) Well, we also happen to know, Jillian, that you are the official, the... You're the head of the official Rush fan club, correct? Correct. You yes. caught me. Yes. Yeah. I run I run the Rush fan club. Mm-hmm. 
do you want to talk about that more? Oh, wait, more. Okay, cool. <laughs> almost, almost all the time. Now, okay. are you guys familiar with the band at all? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we are. Of course. Okay. <laughs> Say more about how familiar you are, so I know how much I have to introduce. Um, I can name probably their top three songs. Yeah, okay. I don't know if I'm... I mean, I really like Rush. I don't know that I am fan club worthy Rush. Oh, certainly not. But <laughs> so many people are like, I've never heard of them. And I'm like, I promise oh, that's you, you have. Yeah, oh, I yeah. promise you. Definitely you absolutely. Yeah. Like if you have a dad or an older brother yeah. and you grew up in a certain yeah. time frame, you know who they are. So yes, I am the, I run the Rush fan club in my, <laughs> in my secret life. <laughs> Number one, why are you so passionate about Rush? And number two, what does it take to run the fan club? Okay, so why am I so passionate about Rush is because I got into them in high school, which is when people get into things. Yes, Yes, absolutely. And it just was like the right time in my life and my emotional growth where their music, their lyrics, I play drums. And so like, you know, back to my wanting to be a rock star, um, it just... They just vibrate with me on all the right levels. So <laughs> fell in love with them, fell in love with them hard. And they're very much of a nerdy band. It's a yeah. nerdcore situation. Yeah. It's like a yeah. uh, cult cult favorite thing. <laughs> and especially being a girl Rush fan is another, um, we're very kind of rare. I was so into them and going to Berkeley and being amongst other Rush fans. Like I was just like vibrating with loving them. And I'm sure anyone that has like, it could be sports, it could be movies, yeah. it could be comic books, like everyone has their thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they, they were my thing. And so I got to the point where I'm like, this is out of control. <laughs> 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 and I harnessed that into the fan club, into RushCon, which is an annual convention mm-hmm. uh, in Toronto where the band is from. It just became sort of like my self-care <laughs> in my fandom and that I could turn it into something creative. Yeah. And it just became this just so crazy and so fun and so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And they were really active, you know, for the past 20 years. So there was tours all the time and we had to have a thing in Toronto every year. And it was it was crazy. It is such hard work. Yeah. I mean, you guys know, like even running a podcast is hard. Mm-hmm. And so like organizing hundreds of people coming to Toronto from or literally around the globe. Yeah. It was just a tremendous amount of work. They're no longer a band. So right. have you met any of the members? I have. It's funny because like someone will try to introduce them, me to them. And they'll like, this is Jelly and she runs around RushCon. And I'm like, no, don't tell them. <laughs> tell them. Pretend I'm normal. Like, <laughs> 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 because if you approach any celebrity as a fan, right. as a normal person, the relationship is completely different. Yeah, so. different vibe. Yeah, no, they're, they're what they're absolutely wonderful humans, and um, I really, really miss them being on tour. But yeah. you know, all good things must come to an end. Yeah. Totally. Have you ever gotten any of the politicians you work for hooked on Rush? No, because okay. Bar- Barack Obama does not care about Canadian oh. progressive rock. Surprisingly, <laughs> right? <laughs> of all the ones that probably could be, I bet Pete definitely has seen a Rush concert. Yeah. I bet you John Fetterman has been to a Rush yeah, concert. For sure. Um, I don't, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine Joe Biden. I don't know. You never know. I mean, he's Mr. You know, Pennsylvania working class guy maybe he's yeah. seen a rush concert or two 
So at the White House, for the Correspondence Center, we shot a skit with President Obama that I was in. And so we got to use some of that footage in the Rush documentary. Oh, nice. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, all the comments on the Rush documentary is like, Obama ruined Rush. And I'm like, no, he has nothing to do with no. this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're missing the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, like, it's funny because when I got the job at the White House, back when you had to like actually... Um, disclose income and stuff, I had to out myself because I had to be like, hey, I, um, because they do not allow you to have any second jobs or any second source of income. So I had to be like, I had to be like, it's totally volunteer. I don't make any money, but like my name is on this thing. And I had to go like to the White House counsel's office. And then when the documentary came out, I'm like, this is going to be coming out. They're going to mention where I work. And luckily, the White House legal guy was a Rush fan, so. Oh, awesome. Nice. (laughs) That's hilarious. It all worked out, yeah. What a cool coincidence. (laughs) But like when I got my background check, I had to be like, yeah, I go to Canada a lot. It's weird, you know, like they they track all your foreign relationships. Right. Or they used to. Um, So yeah, I I always come to the the point of the job where I have to out myself as this crazy Rush fan. That's funny. Well, Jillian, what's the most challenging part of your job? Oh, my gosh. It's incredibly personal work. You know, like I choose to work for people that I strongly, strongly believe in. And when they lose or when negative press comes out against them, that's not true. Or for in Fetterman's case, like, you know, he he had a stroke and um, he was really struggling during the campaign and people were so mean to him. Yeah. And seeing how much that affected him as a person and how that affected his family, like that's devastating. And you're like, here's these people that I, they want to serve the public and they put yeah. themselves out there and they just get torn apart. Like that's really hard. And then also it's really inconsistent work. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I only get busy. I only get super busy every couple, you know, year and a half. So mm-hmm. the in-between time is, um, it's, you know, it's a little slower than I'd like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely a similarity with, you know, jobs in entertainment you're always looking for the next one, right? It's kind of like, it doesn't feel like it's secure. There's never yeah. like, oh, you made it and you're done and you're good. Right. It's like, you always got to look for the next thing. Right. Your show will get canceled yeah. or right. yeah, totally. Yeah. A campaign ends, a show ends. Movies, you know, right. are like campaigns, right? I mean, they yeah. are, you know, designed to only last so long. Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. And, and then when it ends, it's like this huge crash, like, yeah. The emotional crash after a campaign is um is quite severe. Yeah. Is there anything you do to kind of mitigate that? I mean, I've been through so many that I kind of right. expect it. Um e- even though like, you know, I'll be like, okay, this is gonna suck for a couple months, but you know, the news cycle just affects you so much about right. like um as you know, Fetterman especially, like he went into mental health treatment. Yeah. Um which is a really big deal. But, you know, seeing that, it was like, wow, this campaign like destroyed this man. And like, yeah. wow, he's doing amazing and he's going to crush it and I can't wait. But you 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 care about these people and yeah. um, you want to see them succeed and be supported. Yeah, I, that's a huge difference. Like, you know, a, a character on TV, you know, if people trash them on the internet, it might hurt the writer's feelings a little bit, but like, I think it's it's easy for people to forget that 
people running campaigns are real people. They're not characters on a TV. Most of the time. Yeah, not all of them. Yeah. You know, like the ones you work for, especially like people don't always realize like, hey, you're talking about a human being and a human being's family. And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, too easy for people to forget that. So yeah. And even the campaign staff, you know, when they get pulled into it, it's all real people just trying to like do what they can to make a difference. A question we like to ask all of our guests is, do you have any, a moment that stands out from your career and can be from any part of it, big or small, that is either just a favorite moment or a moment where like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living right now. So every day you walk into the White House, you're like, yeah. how, do, how do I keep getting in? Yeah. How do they keep letting me in? <laughs> They're going to catch me at some point. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. Yeah. So every day there was that. And it's, you know, it's the way that the work shifted there so much, like I would be making, designing something for like the Easter egg roll and then there'd be a terrorist attack. So we'd have to like, you know what I mean? We'd have to like some of the best moments and they were few and far between, but anytime I got to be in the room with Barack Obama was pretty unbelievable. It's just an out of out of, out of body experience. And you keep having to tell yourself like, this is real. This is happening. This is real. I'm a professional I, you know, like I have to hit my marks, like this, the skit I shot with him where I was like three feet away from him trying to not laugh. (laughs) Um, And uh, that was probably one of the best moments of my life. Anytime I get to be around the candidate and really see them and make them laugh. And Pete was great. Like Pete was super funny and I'd always try to make him laugh. And um, yeah, that's always the best part. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, we got one more question for you, and you okay. already touched on this just a little bit, Jillian. But what advice do you have for people who want to get either into politics, you know, either into communications or into uh, the creative side of things, or just the entertainment world in general? Do it. Do it. It's going to be hard. You're going to be poor. Um, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be abused. Not like abused, abused, but you know what right. I mean. Like that, you will cry at work. You will bleed at work, but it is so worth it. Yeah. There's real low lows, but there's really high highs. And like, you know, back to the point of having purpose. Yeah. I think what every single person should be chasing. It's Mm -hmm. not about, you know, making a zillion dollars. I mean, yeah, that'd be awesome. Don't get me wrong. I would (laughs) love to have a big bank account right now, but um, the purpose is what drives you. Yeah. And there's levels and there's ways to get involved for everybody. Like I know so many people that are like, I'm just a bus driver. What do I, what can I do? And I'm like, no, that's amazing. You know, the streets, you know, the riders, you know, that like there are any entryway points for every single human that wants to get involved. And that's the, it's the best way when you're feeling really scared about the world is to be like, well, I'm trying to make it better. Let's get to our featured film. Taylor discussing the 1998 comedy Rushmore. It was written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. It was directed by Wes Anderson. It stars Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, and Olivia Williams. So, Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? So, this movie centers on Max Fisher. Um, He's a 15-year-old at Rushmore School. Uh, It's a private school. He's not that great at his actual classes, but he's great at just starting clubs. He starts, like, a bunch of extracurriculars or, like, is in a bunch of extracurriculars. And he's on his way to getting kicked out of school, but he meets this teacher, Miss Cross, and he falls in love with her. 
Um, he finds out she's into fish, so he decides he's going to build an aquarium on school property. Um, that eventually gets him expelled because he does not get permission. Um, he also meets um, Bill Murray's character, who I'm blanking on his name. Herman Bloom. Herman Bloom. Herman Bloom. Who is um, this industrialist who comes to speak at the school and... Uh, Max just feels like he's speaking directly to him and his, Herman's sons go to Rushmore as well. But Max and him become friends, a very unlikely friendship. But then he also starts to uh, secretly date Miss Cross. So that causes a rift with them as well. So we will get more into the plot. But that's sort of the setup of the whole movie. And like I said, Max does get expelled from Rushmore. So then we see him. Oh, he's also a, a really like weirdly accomplished high school playwright he writes a lot of really intense plays yes. <laughs> that are like critically acclaimed among the schools absolutely yes so but let's get into it more and then we'll go over more plot for sure so before we do jillian you chose this movie for us to watch why did you choose rushmore okay i am a big wes anderson fan i'm a big sure. indie film fan and i was actually just arguing with someone about wes anderson recently so it was just sort of on the tip of my tongue and it's one of my favorites mm-hmm so I thought, let's revisit this. Let's yeah. see. And, and yeah. I was surprised it was 1998. Like it was that long ago. Yeah, yeah, I don't, it doesn't seem like it was. Totally. So I just thought this was like a really good, interesting film. Yeah, totally. Does it also appeal to you because it has Rush in the title? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, yes. <laughs> but, uh, that's to say a gorgeous coincidence yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious yeah i mean this movie is great and it's incredible because i mean this is actually jason schwartzman's first, first film oh yeah. really yes yeah. oh, i didn't know that it's incredible for him to be the lead and he he's absolutely great yeah. i mean he's just like you know nerdy little kid that's really annoying at times and obviously very immature but i relate to that kid still you know being that that nerdy guy in high school that's like probably too involved in extracurriculars <laughs> to do well as as well as he should in school yeah. you know and you know for him to be so passionate about something and really latch on to stuff i'm like i get it yeah. even though he is an annoying little kid um at times and you know also like he grows a lot during the movie right mm -hmm. so i mean he gets overly obsessed with stuff doesn't let you know doesn't like to let things go but his relationship with Bill Murray in this is is great, or yeah. I should say Herman Bloom it is great to watch. And they're, they're so strange together. But Bill Murray, you know, is going through a separation. He's really lonely, um, can't really relate to his kids very much, but he does relate to Max. And that's it's pretty cool to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think you said it well. It's like he Max sort of like built the life he wanted. He yeah. built it because like bad grades. He was not one of the rich kids. So right. he sort of had to like, you know, make up for that in other ways, which I think he did really uniquely. And I think, you know, and it it was a coming of age story, you know, his first crush and, and all that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it does have, this is an earlier Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. So it's not quite as like Wes Anderson as his movies are now yes. visually yeah. yeah but still has all those really perky characters who are all really unique totally so that's where I'm at with yeah. Wes Anderson right now so I'm a graphic designer so obviously yeah. like I'm immediately attracted to all things design and Wes Anderson and like you're right this was second to Bottle Rocket right yeah. before um Tannenbaum so yeah. It was very Wes Anderson, but it wasn't like, I'm Wes Anderson, yeah. <laughs> um, which is where he's not like, I couldn't right. get 
French dispatch. Yeah. Mm. I need to give it another try, but I was so fucking annoyed by like the archetypes of a Wes Anderson film. It almost was like a parody because it's like, okay, I've got the pastel colors yeah. and the composition of the shot and the birdcage and the old luggage and the typewriter. It's like, we get it. We get it. Yeah. It's weird because like Moonrise Kingdom, kind of boring, but cool, I guess. And then Budapest Hotel was gorgeous as well. I love and that movie. But then he went and did Fantastic Mr. Fox was genius yeah. and Dog Island, which was genius. Yeah. And that was not hitting you over the top. Right. I mean, obviously it was animated or right. stop motion or whatever. But um, yeah, for, I'm I'm worried about Asteroid City. It looks yeah. good. And I'm obviously going to go see it. Right. But like, it's got a promotional lunchbox. Yeah. Okay. Like. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten really heavy handed. Like he's leaned into it so hard. Yeah. And I think Rushmore was still very pure yeah. and it had, it had the slow motion walking and it mm-hmm. had the vignettes and like yeah. the, the typography is so good. And it, he was just really introducing that then. And it was so perfect It yeah. was because it was a light touch and it was like right. very organic feeling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I also love the relationship between Max and his friend. I don't remember his friend's name. Dirk. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> absolutely. That relationship is so good because of course, you know, they, you know, he's like an assistant. He's following, following Max around everywhere. And then when they have the fight, you know, when he comes to the school and they throw rocks at him and then, and then later on Dirk comes to the, the barbershop and apologizes to him while he gets his haircut. I mean, it's all just so good. And, you know, to see these young actors um, play these very serious parts, yeah. it's really delightful. But I think my, favorite scene is the plays right i mean the plays are so over the top um they're so dramatic and also the way all the characters are in the audience reacting to the plays like they're so emotionally invested in these over the top like violent plays about vietnam and it's so funny to watch because they are so violent and so heavy-handed but to to watch the audience just like weep with with how touched they are by these (laughs) plays is just it's so well done yeah, it's so cool. And like, this is when he started like his ensemble casting, you know, right. putting Schwartzman yeah. and yeah. Bill, Bur- Bill Murray and Luke Wilson and everything. Yep. And then the, the sub little sub characters, Mr. Green Jeans, I, I don't know the actor's name, but he's in yes. every other movie. Yeah, I mean, Tannenbaum's was really great too. Fed re- Rushmore fed really nicely into Tannenbaum's that made that made a really good, a really good jump. Yeah. But yeah, the writing is so good and so unique. And um, Owen Wilson, you know, you can just... And, you know, his brother, of course, it's just it's so funny. And the set design is just so miraculous. Yeah. Did you have a favorite scene in the movie, Julian? Some of the quicker lines where he's like, so you were when Max was asking Herman, like, so you were in Vietnam? And he's like, yeah, he's like, were you in the shit? He's like, I was was in the shit. And then they did like the training video when they were learning about how to act in Vietnam. And then all like the revenge stuff, how he like released all the bees into his hotel room. (laughs) Yep. And uh, that stuff was really funny. And um, I mean, Brian Cox, a young, yeah, vibrant, youthful yeah. Brian Cox was in that. And that was funny. But yeah, the scenes with the weird kids are always so good. Mm-hmm. Um, he does. They do such a good job casting like the weirdest little. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Susan, do you have a favorite scene? I love this is, doesn't count as a scene, but like the nonchalant lines, like where he's like, yeah, I tried to get this play done at my old school, but it didn't work out because a kid blew a finger off. <laughs> and like, that's no big deal. Um, Him bringing in dynamite for a school play. And then that barbershop scene you mentioned, that was like a very mature scene of 
like two 15 year old boys having this moment where they reconcile and like you know just a really heavy mo like serious moment for two that was just two school kids who got in a fight. Yeah. Like, I loved that. I loved the contrast there. Yeah. And I, another money line was he was like, nice nurse's uniform. He's yeah. like, these are OR scrubs. Yes. So are they? All the dates yeah. at yeah. Luke Wilson's character were so good. <laughs> and yeah. then inviting him to the play at the end. And, and telling him to wear a tie. Yeah, telling him to wear a tie. Yeah. yeah. Just like a kind of an olive branch, but also still like cutting him down. Um, just really good. I wonder what it was like for that group of actors to understand like what they were doing and like right. how unique it was and how strange. I mean, yeah. Bill Murray, you know, he's gotten sort of a, a bad reputation yeah. as of late, which is right. sad because he yeah. seems like such a good actor and like fun to be around. But mm -hmm. um. But um, is he is he in Asteroid City, Bill Murray? I I don't think he is. I think that's the first one in a while. Oh he's wow! Not yeah. in. Um, I think Tom Hanks sort of has right. Hanks unofficially taken kind of that taken that, that role that kind of yeah. role in the movie. Okay. Interesting, because that because Rushmore's so quintessential Murray when he's got like yeah. the yes. crazy hair and he's the two yeah. cigarettes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, just overall a great movie. And again, like very good example of Wes Anderson character development and everything. Yeah. You know, writing. Yeah. I also love the the fact that throughout the movie, like just the hair is yeah. like is a character. It just tells you where that character is at, right? Because I mean, the whole time Max is lying about his dad, you know, being this special doctor when really he's a barber. Yeah. But you know, you can see how frayed a character is by how much their hair is messed up, especially Bill Murray's yeah. character. Yeah you know, of, of Herman, you know, he's totally depressed, loses his mind, says her all is, is all weird, but then he goes to Max's dad, right. Yes. As, as like the family figure to get his hair straightened out, mm -hmm. to get his life figured out, you know, it's so well done. And just in that thought that goes into it of like, what's the most humble kind of position that, that someone can really reset themselves. Yeah. And it's like, we'll go get a haircut and then yeah. like, turn your life around. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it was just such like a moment of caring, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, it starts with Max getting a haircut by his dad and then right. Dirk and then, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it stands up too. Like, oh, it yeah. really stands up. It was, mm -hmm. God, it's so rich. Oh, I miss, I miss those days, that, that era of film so much. Yeah. yeah. Even the uncomfortable relationship between the, the student and the teacher, yeah. the, you know, the teacher is always, you know, rejects it. Right. 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 So, I mean, she acknowledges that like, she doesn't like pretend it's not there. She acknowledges it. Mm -hmm. And then, moves out which i appreciate it yeah. because i'm like i'm glad that the movie didn't go that way yeah yeah it doesn't feel dated when you watch it like it's it's kind of timeless well thank you for recommending it it's been a while since i've seen it so it was a it was a pleasure to revisit it Sam. <laughs> we'd like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling let's get schooled in honor of rushmore we're going to see how well both of you know movies set in schools All right so, Jillian, you're going to be playing against Susan. So, here are the rules. I will describe a movie that is at least partially set in a school. As soon as you know the film, shout out the title. The first person to name it correctly will get a point. I have seven movies for you to identify, and the first person to name four correctly will win our prize. And, Susan, what's our prize? It is some Life in the Credits merchandise, so like a shirt Ooh. or a mug or something like that. Totally. Awesome. Yeah. Love it. All right. <laughs> 
Jillian, are you ready to play? I'm ready. Ready, ready. Susan, ready? Ready. All right, here we go. First one. This is the tale of an ordinary 11-year-old boy who learns that he is actually a wizard. Oh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. And, Susan, you, oh. so, what's the name of the first movie? Um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yes, okay. very good. All right, Susan's on the board with one point. Jillian, you barely missed. Okay, it's okay. It's only one yeah. point. All right, number two. A 60-year-old homeschooled girl who excels at math attends a new school. She makes the mistake of falling for the ex-boyfriend of the queen bee of the popular girls. Mean girls. Yes. Oh. Very good. That is mean girls. Yes. Well of done. Of course it is. So it is one to one. All right. Number three. Okay. After being kicked out of his rock band, a guitar. Oh, School of Rock. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> that was fast. That, movie, like, that was good. <laughs> Lots of Rush references in that yeah. one. <laughs> Very Jack, Black good. Is, Jack Black is a huge Rush fan. He goes yeah. to all the shows. Uh, Jack Black is a national treasure. <laughs> yes, he is. All right, number four. Susan's in the lead. Two to one. Two to one. It's California 1958, and Greaser and a good girl fall in love over the summer. Grease. Yes, yeah. of course it is. That's Grease. Two to two. I second guess myself. <laughs> don't do it. You don't yeah. have time. All right, it's two to two, and we have three to go. Okay. Oh, my God. Next one. A pair of underachieving police officers are sent to a local high school to blend in and bring down a synthetic. 21 Jump Street? Yes. Shit. Okay. Shit. I never saw that. Shit. It is a very funny movie. Highly recommend. Score is three to two. Susan's in the lead. If Susan gets one more point, she wins, Jillian. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Okay. So, there are only seven. There are only seven. Oh, my God. So, Jillian, focus up. Here we go. A shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother unleashes her telekinetic Harry. powers. Yes, that is oh. Carrie. Well done. So, score is three to three. Oh my God. Holy shit. We got God. one more movie to go. Now, this is the hardest one. Okay. okay. So, a lonely teenager finds his former girlfriend dead in the entrance of a tunnel and recalls her phone call from two days prior when she said to him that she was in trouble. He unravels the motives of why she was killed and plots a revenge. This movie stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lucas Haas, and Emily DeRavin, and was directed by Ryan Johnson. Never saw it. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what this is. Okay. If neither of you know the movie, the movie was Brick. Fuck, um, I was going to say that because I know oh, the I've never, seen, I've never heard of that movie. Oh, that movie is phenomenal. Really? You need to watch, watch it. it. All right. So here's the thing. I have to now, on the fly, find a new oh, movie no. to describe to you guys. <laughs> okay. Your tiebreaker. Five high school students meet in... Breakfast Club. Yes! <laughs> Very good. Well done, Jillian. Brick is a deep, deep cut. A deep cut, yeah. <laughs> Excellent movie. I highly anticipate yeah. people watch it. But that wasn't the Noah Baumbach, right? That was the other guy. Right. Okay. Ryan Johnson. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I got to Okay. Cool. All right. Well, Jillian, you win. Congratulations. <laughs> that was a good game. That was close. That was, that was really good. Close. Yeah. That was really good. Well, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug? I would say for all you Rush fans out there, if you're interested mm -hmm. in RushCon and keeping in touch with what we have are planning, hopefully for the next year, please visit RushCon.org. Um, if you're a human that cares about other human beings, I encourage people to vote for the Democratic Party. 
<laughs> now let me let me preface this by like Joe Biden great fine we'll take him you know he's had a great year he's not a spring chicken he's gonna fall he's gonna stutter he's gonna fall off his bike again he's actually a really good tremendous person so even if you're not like the most excited about Joe Biden we still need we're gonna need every single boot on the ground for 2024 great well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, yes. Jillian. This has yeah. been a special pleasure. This is really, really interesting. Uh, bye, guys. This was so much fun. Let's do it every week. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Barack Obama does not care about Canadian progressive rocks, surprisingly, <laughs> right? <laughs>